Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good Good morning, morning, everyone. We (laughs) We were just saying, do you think they should settle? I was saying to Poppy, and they're like, go. I didn't even have time to answer. I mean, it's fascinating. We're talking about Fox News, by the way, in Dominion. What do you think? It's fascinating. I think they have a lot to weigh in whether... Lipstick on yeah, my teeth. We're um, off to a good start. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> you said there's a lot. I left. think there's a lot to weigh here. Yeah. You know, I think there is a uh, value in a trial, and there's also a risk in a trial. Yeah. Yeah. I we'll don't know. see. We'll see. We're going to update you on all of that. Good morning, everyone. Caitlin is off today. This is Poppy and I. So we're going to get started with the five things to know for this Monday, April 17th, 2023. And we're going to start. With the Dominion trial. That Dominion trial start, though, in that Fox defamation trial abruptly delayed until tomorrow. The Wall Street Journal is reporting it's because Fox is making a late effort to settle. We'll get into that. Also, protesters taking to the streets of Kansas City after a 16-year-old was shot and wounded by a homeowner after he went to the wrong address just to pick up his little brothers. Family members say that Ralph Yarrell is recovering in the hospital after just accidentally going to 115th Street instead of 115th Terrace. How does this happen? Awful story. Awful. New overnight, the U.S. carries out a helicopter raid in northeastern Syria, killing a senior ISIS leader and two others. That is according to the Pentagon. The target not yet identified, but the Pentagon did say they were responsible for planning terror attacks in the Middle East and in Europe. And happening today, Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee coming to Manhattan to hold a field hearing on crime in the city. Mayor Eric Adams calls it a political stunt. And ready for launch? SpaceX eyeing a 9 a.m. Eastern test flight of its most powerful rocket yet. The eventual goal is for the Starship to take astronauts to the moon and possibly Mars. CNN This Morning starts right now. So we're going to begin with the story Pop and I were talking about when we first came on the air, and that is the Fox News Dominion trial. It was supposed to start today, right, Monday, but there's a surprise twist here because the judge in that case announcing that he is delaying the high stakes $1.6 billion defamation case until tomorrow. That's a lot of money, by the way. There are reports that the network news giant is now trying to settle out of court. We'll see. Dominion Voting Systems has accused Fox News of broadcasting lies and conspiracy theories about its voting machines after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, even though the network's hosts and executives allegedly knew that they were not true. It's already being called a media trial of the century, and legal experts tell CNN that Dominion appears to have the strongest defamation case against a major U.S. news outlet in a generation. Let's bring in our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Uh, good morning. There's good morning. so much on the table what here. What a twist. I know. What the a, plot thickens. What a twist. Why would a judge do this? Well, so if you go to a judge in either a criminal or civil case on the eve of trial and say, we're making close progressions towards a settlement or in a criminal case, this is not a criminal case, towards a guilty plea, often judges will say, okay, 
I'll give you a day, I'll give you two days, maybe I'll give you a week, I'll give you a chance to work it out. I think that's the most likely scenario we've seen reporting consistent with that as well. So you think there's, you think there's probably those talks somewhere going on? Yeah, there's something about being on the eve of trial that can really sober up both parties. It's a reality, right? Look, look at it from Fox's point of view. They're looking at the likelihood, if there's a trial, of having all of their or many of their most prominent anchors have to take the stand testify and get cross-examined. So, and the owners and the and, big top executives. And the executives, and up to and including Rupert Murdoch. And so you can understand why they would be hit by reality at the last moment and say, we need to avoid this. And, you know, another question is, why would Dominion be interested in potentially settling this? Because as, as we've discussed, I think Dominion has a very strong case here for defamation. But the fact of the matter is, nothing's sure when it comes to a jury. There's always risk when it comes to a jury trial. Jury's just 12 human beings. You never know what they're going to do. So if, if there is a settlement, help us understand, because it's beyond how much money they settle for, which I think gets a disproportionate amount of attention. Yeah, but how much is a lot of dough? I, 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 under, <laughs> I understand that. I think also the company has a lot of money. What I think is fascinating if there is a settlement is, does it come with an admission of guilt an apology right. or an admission of wrongdoing. So there's a couple of things that are in play here if there's a negotiation. First of all, of course, there's the amount. Parties will go back and forth on that. Second of all, there's will this be confidential? Usually settlements like this are confidential. We don't know the numbers unless we get it through reporting, but we wouldn't know it officially. But the parties are free to negotiate. This number will or will not be confidential. And then the parties can negotiate for any sort of admission of guilt, statement, acknowledgement, retraction, et cetera. But keep in mind, the judge here has already made a finding as a matter of law that Fox's statements about the 2020 election and about Dominion were false. So that is on the record. The only question at trial was going to be, is there actual malice? Did Fox know or were they reckless about the falsity? So no matter what, Dominion has that finding of falsity. OK, so then one point six billion. You're right. It's a lot of money. But Fox has deep pockets. Right. Yes. And, and their viewers will probably not believe you know, that they did anything wrong, that they were targeted, you know, so I'm, I'm not sure what it does to their credibility, right? right? Because it's kind of, you know, you know well, what I'm talking about. the facts are out there, right? We've all seen the text. They're all out there. And we have the finding from the judge. About okay, so then $1.6 billion, if they go to court and they win, are they likely to get that? And if they settle, how much money are we talking about? So I don't think there was any realistic chance of Dominion getting $1.6 billion in compensatory damages, meaning the amount we were damaged, the amount we have to be paid back to get us back to zero. The entire company, by its own valuation, is worth anywhere from 30 to $80 million, but that's not even 10% of $1.6 billion. Yes, okay. Dominion is worth it. So from Dominion's point of view, I think $1.6 billion was always a very optimistic, optimistic ask. Now, keep in mind, though, they could also get punitive damages. And so if Fox is looking at this, they're saying, okay, Dominion's asking for $1.6 billion to compensate them, but also punitive damages on top. So again, you can see the high-end risk that Fox would be running at a trial here. Yeah. Don't go on vacation this weekend. <laughs> right, and then Fox we'll see what also happens. apologizing to that judge for oh, right. not presenting. Well, they got in trouble with the, with the judge on a couple yeah. big issues last week. I could incentivize them too. Thank you, Ellie. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So we are learning now more uh, about the victims killed in a mass shooting during a Sweet 16 birthday party in Alabama. Police say four people were killed and 28 others injured at a dance studio in the small town of Dadeville. That was on Saturday night. Among the dead was a high school football star who was getting ready to graduate and play in college. He was the brother of the birthday girl. 
Isabel Rosales is live for us at the scene of that shooting. For Good morning, Isabel. Wow, police haven't released any information about the potential suspect. What is going on here? Hey, good morning to you, Donya. The Alabama law enforcement agency, Aurelia, claims that there is no public safety concern here. But they haven't answered any questions about the status of the shooter or shooters. They say that right now they are still working to interview witnesses. They're gathering information, saying that this is a fluid process, that they are not in a rush, that they are working through this methodically to get answers. We are a village that will come together. Hundreds gathered in Dadeville, Alabama, Sunday evening, seeking solace. We'll never be the same. And answers. Father, we come before you. Lord, would trouble in our hearts. Yes. Father, with questions on our mind. After shots rang out at a weekend Sweet 16 party. There are still four lives lost. Four lives were lost in the tragic event that occurred here in Dayton. As far as the injuries, there are 28 individuals that were injured during the course of the incident. On Sunday, hospital officials said at least 15 teenagers were treated for gunshot wounds, including several who are in critical condition. It wasn't a fight. No, it started shooting. One of the victims killed was Phil Stavius Dowdell, a stellar high school football player and the brother of the birthday girl. His coach, at first in disbelief. It can't be true. It just it, it, it cannot be true. Coach Michael Taylor describing Dowdell as a dedicated and gifted athlete. Phil just actually got a uh, scholarship to play football at uh, Jacksonville State University. A second victim has also been identified by family as Kiki Smith, also a senior in high school and the student manager of the track team, looking forward to attending the University of Alabama. These children had very bright futures, the ones that I knew from Dateville. Very, very athletic, very uh, humble children, very respectful children, um, smart. As the investigation continues, police have not released any information about the assailant or a possible motive. What we've dealt with is something that no community should have to endure. I just ask for your patience. They're asking for the community's help. I cannot stress this enough. Ever how minor you think it is, we absolutely need you to share it. As the stunned town of Dadeville grieves, another American city rocked by gun violence. Could you ever imagine an act of violence like this happening in Dadeville? Never. Don't happen. We don't have uh, gun violence. You know what I mean? Unreal, still unreal. And this is such an obvious, uh, traumatizing and shocking uh, uh, event that has happened to this community of just 3,000 people. The superintendent says that counselors will be available at county schools today. Don. All right. Isabel Rosales, thank you. Well, in just a few hours, about 30,000 runners will line up at the start of the 127th Boston Marathon. This race comes 10 years after the finish line bombing that killed three people and heard hundreds of others. Boston marketed that fateful day, marked, I should say, that fateful day this weekend with reminders set up across the city. It's known as One Boston Day, a wreath laid at a memorial for the three spect spectators who also were killed in that attack. Polis Sandoval is live in Boston this morning. Um, we were, Don and I were both there um, for a long time covering this. And, uh, and, I, and I'm still in touch with some of the victims who were injured who lost limbs as a result. 
families who lost their loved ones. Yeah. This is a day to not forget, to never forget what happened. And I was here, Poppy, a year after for the first running of the marathon after the attack. Here we are now, a decade later, and I can tell you here in Boston, the mood is still both somber and celebratory on this day. So it's definitely going to be a mix of both. You mentioned over the weekend a long list of tributes on Saturday, which was the actual anniversary with the families of those three, three spectators certainly on hand for a private ceremony, as well as, of course, the officers that uh, subsequently lost their lives as well. So that is really renewing the focus today. And then today, the actual running, there will no doubt be yet another wave of tributes. In fact, there will be a flyover in the 8 o'clock hour. Uh, a squad of F-15s will fly those 26.2 miles. And then the runners, they're going to be hitting the pavement. This is actually going to be one of the streets that's going to be closed off to traffic here very soon before things get underway. The runners, uh, some, as you mentioned earlier, some uh, 30,000 of them will then turn at this intersection. And then from here, it's close to a straight shot, another four miles before they reach that iconic Boylston Street finish line. So again, a little bit of both. Yes, there will certainly be some, uh, plenty of emotion today, Poppy, but it's also a time to celebrate a reminder of the resilience of the city. And of course, so many people coming together, supporting those mm -hmm. people who were lost and injured on that horrible day. And it's been amazing to see what people who lost loved ones and were injured and lost limbs have done since then in sort of terms of starting huge foundations to raise awareness to help others. That has been just, I think, a reminder of the resilience for they sure. They say they want to move on with their lives. So yes. I, some of them don't even like marking That's the anniversary. Very they, good just, point. they just don't talk about it and they just move on. Yeah. Right. Polo, we're glad you're there. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. A teenager in Kansas City just went to the wrong house to pick up his siblings, and he was shot by the homeowner. He's hospitalized this morning, what police are saying, and why that shooter has been released. And the fallout continues after the highly classified Pentagon documents leak. Democratic Senator Kristen Gillibrand says that she has a lot of questions, what she wants to know straight ahead. You have to pay attention to this story. I think it's going to build throughout the day and throughout the week here. The new this morning, Kansas City teen Ralph Jarl is his name, is in the hospital after he accidentally went to the wrong house to pick up his brothers and was shot by the homeowners. A homeowner. Police and Jarl's family say that he was instructed to go to the address at 115th Terrace, but he mistakenly went to a residence on 115th Street instead. The shooter has been released. All kinds of questions about that. So we're checking in with our correspondent, uh, Camilla Bernal. She joins us now live with more. Camilla, good morning to you. What is the latest on his condition? What happened? Good morning, Don. So the family says he's doing well physically, but say he has a long road ahead mentally and emotionally. Look, this is a teenager that was described as friendly and well-mannered. He was looking forward to graduating high school, and instead all of that is going to be very difficult, simply because, as you mentioned, he went to 115th Street instead of going to 115th Terrace. He was just blocks away from where his brothers were when he was shot. The Kansas City community protesting on Sunday after 16-year-old Ralph Yarl was shot as he was trying to pick up his siblings last week. Police say Yarl accidentally went to the wrong address where he was shot and seriously wounded by the homeowner. 
Officers arrived at the scene after a neighbor called 911 and took the homeowner immediately into custody. Our heart goes out to the juvenile victim and more than anything to make sure that this child um, and this child's family knows that there are people working hard, a number of people working hard to make sure there is justice for this person. The homeowner, who has not been identified, was released after 24 hours pending further investigation. The police department says they're waiting to obtain a formal statement from the victim and further forensic evidence. I want everyone to know that I'm listening and I understand the concern that, that we are receiving from the community. The information that we have now, it does not say that, that it's racially motivated. That's still an active investigation. But as a chief of police, I do recognize the racial components of this case. I do recognize and understand um, the community's concern. Jarl's aunt says her nephew loves music and is a section leader in his marching band. She says his goal is to attend Texas A&M University to study chemical engineering. Civil rights attorneys Lee Merritt and Benjamin Crump are representing the victim and his family and demanding swift action and are calling the shooting horrendous and unjustifiable. As a mother of three children, this enrages me. And protesters gathering Sunday outside the home where Yara was shot, demanding justice. He is alive. <laughs> he is healing. Yes. So I just want to tell you thank you for being here because my nephew is alive. Now, the homeowner was placed on a 24-hour hold. This is according to Missouri state law. The thing here is after those 24 hours, he either has to be charged or released. And prosecutors say they want more evidence. They want a further investigation. And that's why this homeowner was released. And it's also why so many people are so angry, Don. Yeah, and we'll be following, at least as his aunt said, he is, he's alive and he's healing. But we're going to continue to check yes. on him and the story. Thank you, Camilla Bernal. We appreciate Thank that. You. In other news, U.S. forces conducted a raid against ISIS militants in Syria overnight, what we're now learning at this hour. A senior ISIS leader and two others are believed to be dead after a U.S. helicopter raid in Syria. According to a U.S. Central Command spokesperson, the ISIS leader was responsible for planning terror attacks in the Middle East and Europe. It's part of an ongoing U.S. campaign targeting the terror group in Iraq and Syria and preventing the organization from regaining its numbers and strength. One week ago, another helicopter raid led to the capture of an ISIS operative and two of his associates. Also, the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman who was arrested and charged for leaking secret U.S. intelligence documents online will be back in court this Wednesday to determine whether or not he gets bail. Lawmakers are now asking questions about his access to all of these highly classified documents. Listen to this from Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Here's what she told Jake on State of the Union yesterday. Why were these documents lying around? Why did this particular person have access to them? Where was the custody of the documents and who were they for? She had a lot of questions. Natasha Bertrand, she joins us from the Pentagon and Ivan Watson in Hong Kong. Natasha, a lot of questions for the Biden administration from that Democratic senator on this. 
Yeah, and the Defense Department is conducting a review of all of those questions. We are told that they have begun an intelligence review of who can access this kind of information. Because, again, this person, this man who allegedly leaked these documents, he was essentially an IT person for the Air National Guard in Massachusetts. He did not need to engage with the content of these documents on a day-to-day -day basis. He was more responsible for kind of making sure that the network operated correctly and that everyone whose job it was actually to review these documents had access to them. So the question now not only is why was he able to retrieve these documents and also apparently print them out uh, without anyone noticing, but also was there proper vetting of him because he had a top secret clearance and he was given that in 2021, even though he had been on these chat rooms, uh, including the chat room where he allegedly leaked mm. these documents for about five years. So there's going to be a lot of questions here for the Defense Department about how they disseminate this information. And we are told that they've already started to put restrictions on who is receiving these top-secret documents across the U.S. government, Poppy. Mm -hmm. um, Ivan, one of the big um, revelations that come out of the, the leaks this week is that, according to the documents that were, that were leaked, Taiwan is extremely vulnerable to a Chinese air attack. What can you tell us about that? Sure. This was reported by The Washington Post. CNN has not seen the document, and we've reached out to the Pentagon for comment and are waiting for a response. But basically what The Washington Post says is that this document suggests Taiwan's air defenses are not ready for a real-world event, that uh, it could be overwhelmed by the number of missiles that China could potentially fire, uh, that there are a whole host of uh, areas where Taiwan is not ready, where its radios are not compatible between the different units of air defense. Uh, and it also goes on to say that uh, China is conducting so many operations with uh, planes and ships around Taiwan that it's making it difficult for U.S. intelligence to assess uh, what is just a drill and what could be escalatory activity uh, by China, what could actually be a preparation for some type of an assault on the self-governing island. Now, uh, the Taiwanese uh, defense ministry has responded to these reports saying, quote, we respect outside opinion on our national defense, but a foreign media cited unidentified documents and the content was obviously not factual. The defense ministry going on to say it is ready for uh, any kind of eventuality that might involve uh, the Chinese military. I might add some more context. The, the Chinese uh, flew four warplanes across the median line of mm -hmm. the Taiwan Strait. This according to Taiwanese officials. This is kind of everyday activity. And meanwhile, a U.S. guided missile destroyer, it conducted a transit of the Taiwan Strait on Sunday, a so-called freedom Jeez. of navigation operation, something the Chinese don't like, but the U.S. does to show it can operate in international waters. It seems like from these documents, um, Natasha, that Taiwan doubts its ability even more than perhaps the United States doubts Taiwan's ability in terms of defense. I mean, they outline the fact that Taiwan officials are concerned their air defense systems can't accurately detect missile launches and that only half of their aircraft are even mission capable at this point. 
Yeah, and that it would be very difficult for them to move all of their jets right. into a safe location, uh, right, if China did launch a kind of air blitz on the island. So, look, I mean, this is something that the U.S. military is very concerned about. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, he spoke to this just a few months ago. He said that China currently believes that war with the U.S. is inevitable, which is kind of a scary thought. But he cautioned that, saying that, uh, you know, that there it tends to be some overheated rhetoric and that it is not clear that China will actually move forward with trying to invade Taiwan by 2027, which we should note Xi Jinping, the president of China, has uh, ordered his military to be prepared for. And of course, the U.S. would likely come to Taiwan's defense uh, if that were to happen. But there are a lot of questions here about whether the U.S. is uh, sending equipment to Taiwan fast enough. And that is what Milley said is currently a priority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speed. And readiness. Thank you, Natasha. Great to have you. Ivan Watson in Hong Kong. Thank you both very much. A deadly battle for control between rival forces in Sudan right now. Details on the vicious power struggle between the country's military leadership ahead. Plus, migrants risking their lives to make the journey to the U.S., crossing a dangerous stretch of jungle bridging North and South America. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh was there and he witnessed it along uh, the route and he's going to bring us that story straight ahead. We want to take you now to the deadly violence in Sudan. We're entering a third day of it after months of rising tension between a paramilitary group and Sudan's armed forces. It all erupted this weekend into severe clashes. Nearly 100 people have been killed, hundreds more injured as the fighting intensifies in the capital of Khartoum, where the presidential palace and the airport have also been attacked. Our Larry Madoo is tracking all of this. And Larry, I think the question is, this has been a tightrope walk since really 2019, right? When you had the popular revolution, the ousting of a dictator, and these two generals battling for control, but all erupting this weekend. All erupting this weekend, Poppy, and we can't tell for how much longer this will go on because it appears that this power struggle between these two powerful generals in Sudan is escalating instead of de-escalating despite calls from the U.S., the U.K., the U.N., the African Union, the European Union, the Arab League for them to go back to the negotiating table. 97 people dead so far, 1,100 people wounded. Those numbers will almost suddenly increase. I spoke to one half of this conflict, General Mohamed Hamdan. He was not on video because he did not want to reveal any clues as to where he is for fear of getting captured. Two generals at war. Since Saturday, the forces of General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, known as the Rapid Support Forces Paramilitary Group, or RSF, have been locked in battle with the Sudanese army, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. The fighting comes as Sudan tries to finalize a deal to return to civilian rule, after two military coups in recent years, which temporarily united the army and the RSF. In a phone interview, Dagalo, who is better known as Hemeti, told me ruling Sudan isn't his endgame. What do you personally want from this situation, General Hamdan? Do you want to lead the army? Do you want to be the chief? I don't want to be the leader of the army. There's a framework agreement between all the Sudanese stakeholders that should be adhered to. I don't want to lead anything. These are all propaganda they are making. As part of the agreement, the RSF, some 100,000 strong, would merge with the army. But differences over how long that would take and who would end up with more power aggravated tensions between the two factions, which have since erupted into open warfare. Residential areas across Sudan have become battlefields. 
with anti-aircraft weapons in the streets and warplanes hovering overhead. Scores of civilians have been killed. The army blames the RSF for the violence, with Hemeti pointing the finger back at Al-Burhan. What is your message to the many people of Sudan who are scared about this fresh round of violence? We offer a serious apology to them, because what we can say is Al-Burhan is the one that forced us to do this. It was not us who did this. We were defending ourselves. Doctors' unions say it's been difficult for medics to move about amid reports of many people being trapped near fighting hotspots. Despite a UN-brokered temporary truce, there were reports of gunfire in Khartoum, which Hamedi again blamed on the army. We're under attack from all directions. They are attacking us with marked and unmarked vehicles. Unfortunately, they're not stopping. It's unclear what side was firing during the ceasefire, but the army says it retains the right to respond if any violations occurred. Sudan's neighbors are looking for ways to de-escalate the violence. Egypt and South Sudan have offered to mediate talks between the two sides. The African Union and the Arab League both held emergency sessions with more calls for an immediate end to the hostilities. The army has said there will be no dialogue until the RSF is dissolved. Hemeti says the stakes are so high in Sudan that any possible negotiations would have to be serious. We are not refusing to go to the negotiating table as long as the negotiation is true and truthful, honest, not playing games. This morning, we've seen a joint statement from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the U.K. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly asking for an immediate cessation of hostilities in Sudan and a return to the negotiating table. The African Union is sending several leaders to Sudan, including the presidents of Kenya, South Sudan, and Djibouti, to try and get these two warring generals back to the table to discuss. Sudan is Africa's third largest nation and has had the most number of successful or attempted coups, so a real concern, Papi, what happens there? Yeah, of course. Larry, we appreciate the reporting very, very much. Also, take a look here stateside. You're looking at live pictures. The Boston Marathon set to get underway in a few hours. We're live on the ground. I just saw a guy walk by uh, in a tutu. Uh, over for the marathon? shorts for the marathon. Celebrating. Yeah, yeah celebrating. Plus, uh, love may be blind, but it's not always patient. Netflix apologizing for technical difficulties after a big delay in what was supposed to be a live reunion for the popular Love is Blind series. How viewers and Netflix competitors reacted. This is Nicholas Shea. Yes. Incredibly successful. We actually have no idea what's going to go down at this reunion. You know why? Because we're doing it live. That's right, the first live reunion in the history of Netflix. That means anything could happen. Literally anything. And when it does, we will be just as shocked as you are. You should hear our conversation. We're like, Nick, Nick are we call him Lachey? Lachey? Which guys, band was it? It was always Lachey, 98 degrees. Get with the program. All right, but we're talking about now Love is Blind. Yes, millions of fans were shocked with Netflix last night and this morning. Netflix is apologizing after highly anticipated live Love is Blind reunion wasn't exactly live. Eager fans tuned in to watch the dating reality show. Scheduled start time is supposed to be 8 p.m. Eastern, only to stare at a waiting room screen for 90 minutes. Can you imagine the delay. Eventually, Netflix opted to tape it for streaming to air later today. Netflix tweeted an apology saying to everyone who stayed up late, woke up early, gave up their Sunday afternoon, we are incredibly sorry that Love is Blind. Live reunion did not turn out as, as we had planned. 
Twitter had a lot to say about the technical snafu from fans, its competitors. Uh, Bravo tweeting, we will never make you wait for reunion. <laughs> Blockbuster also got in on the action writing. Remember renting VHS from us? You could start it on time. No problem. I miss those those days. So I did not see it. Did you? Did you? Are you a Love Is Blind fan? I am not, but I think it's so interesting. They they had great success with the Chris Rock selective right. outrage right. live streaming, and a lot of these streamers are now getting into the live action business because people want it. But all those teases about anything could happen. Yeah, well, it, did. Did happen. <laughs> it did happen. It didn't actually happen. So they actually taped it and then they streamed it later. So I told you, I had, my weekend was awesome because there were two Columbo marathons on at the same time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. John, that, uh, wow. I know. And the Law and Order. I love old television. <laughs> he loves Law so I'm and watching, Order. watching, you know, uh, I think it was on Sundance and Cozy TV and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just oh watching, I'm watching the whole With thing. With the pups, right? All with three the of them. pups and my new sheets. Oh, well, that's... That was amazing. That's a win. Amazing Those are weekend. the things that make me happy in my older age. Well, sometimes it's nice to be alone. Sheet, right? it a, yeah, sometimes Tim's, it's just Tim's nice to be alone. Tim's out of town business, so I had you the know? whole bed and my new sheets and two Columbo <laughs> marathons, which... Boy, I, I don't even know what to say. I know. Because <laughs> like, you definitely said. didn't have that weekend with three boys. No, I did not. Um, but you are our chief business correspondent <laughs> as well. Let's talk about hopeful signs sure. for the economy right now and recession fears lower. So it's kind of a riddle, and a lot of people have been asking me this. You know, how come we have what looks like a strong mm. economy and signs of progress a year after the Fed has been uh, raising interest rates, but there are still so many recession warnings? And, and both of these things are true. You look at CPI, PPI, inflation, as we reported here last week, the it appears that they have peaked and they're coming down pretty rapidly here. So the inflation story is getting better. You also have a job market that is still pretty strong here. Even with a little bit of weakness lately, it is still an overall strong job market. And you have the Treasury Secretary, Secretary this weekend who told our Fareed Zakaria that, look, you can have both things happening at the same time, a strong job market and lower inflation. Listen. I think we probably need some easing of stress in the labor market to get inflation down. But that doesn't mean that we need to see unemployment rise significantly. I, I believe a strong labor market and bringing down inflation are compatible goals. It's interesting because there's that cruel kind of trade-off that we keep hearing about, that you're going to have to have some job loss to get inflation down. She's saying maybe uh, we can do both. But we have banking stress in the system. We have the lag effects of all those Fed rate hikes. So there are still plenty of recession warnings out there. Also, what happens with the debt ceiling? Will we shoot ourselves in the foot by not, you know, raising the debt ceiling? Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, was asked about this in a really interesting interview with Margaret Brennan on CBS yesterday. Here's what she said. I have had confidence in this country, and I just cannot believe that they would let such a major major disaster happen of the United States defaulting on its debt. This is not possible. I cannot believe that it would happen. But if it did happen, it would have very, very negative impact, not just for this country, where confidence would be challenged, but around the world. She also said, look, I understand politics. I get it. But there are times, and this is one of them, where, where the health and the good of yeah. the nation rises above that. And, and this is one of those times here. We're going to have Kevin McCarthy um, at the New York Stock Exchange later this morning talking okay. about what his strategy is. There's a solution here. Three simple solutions. You just raise the debt ceiling cleanly. 
you raise the debt ceiling with some sort of uh, conditions attached for future spending, which is what McCarthy is going to p- point out today, or you get rid of the damn thing. And plenty of people think that um, to just take the politics out of it. it has not become a tool for, you, you know, for funding the government anymore. It's become a political football. And that's that's not good. That's not good for America. Yeah. Take the politics out of it. Christine Roman, come on, you're being way too logical. I'm just, morning. you know, I'm just trying to give you a solution. <laughs> Easy, simple solution. <laughs> Thanks, Christine. Bye. Yeah. New sheets. <laughs> <laughs> linen sheets will change your life. Really? Yes, yeah, splurged. Well, I I'm totally a fan splurged. Of the linen and, yeah, Poppy, let me tell you, sorry. <laughs> Poppy convinced me. Poppy said, on this shift, you have to pay attention to your sleep. It's very important. It's the she most convinced important me to thing. get new pillows and new sheets. Oh, yeah. I did tell you about what yeah. pillows to get. Did you get them? Yeah. And you're happy? And I'm ha- very happy. Very happy. I, a sound you. machine is good, too. You need a sound machine. I do need yeah. that. Oh, not a Miami sound I'll machine. I'll send you a link. There's well. a good one. Okay. Thanks. Dominion Voting Systems, high-stakes defamation trial against Fox delayed at the 11th hour. Details on the possibility of a settlement out of court straight ahead. So a man who spent decades behind bars for a murder he says he didn't commit is set to turn himself back in today. Crosley Green spent the last two years free. That was after a judge overturned his murder conviction, but the state appealed that ruling and won. Now Green, who has maintained his innocence since the 1989 killing, is due back in prison. CNN's Carlos Suarez reports. It's been two years since Crossley Green was conditionally released from prison. During that time, the 65-year-old bonded with his family, held down a job, and fell in love. Peace blessing, this is my woman. This is my future wife. Hopefully, I pray that, and it's going to come true. One of Green's prayers for more than three decades has been for freedom. But on Monday, his prayers will continue from behind prison walls. The thought of the separation makes his fiance anxious. I've been with this man for two years. Um, to not be able to have a five o'clock phone call to say I'm home for me to say, what do you want for dinner? That's what I'm anxious about. In 1990, Green was sentenced to death by an all-white jury in the 1989 shooting death of a 21-year-old man in Mims, Florida. It's a murder Green said he did not commit. According to his attorneys, no physical evidence linked Green to the scene, and three key witnesses later recanted their testimony, including what they said under oath about Green confessing to the crime. I can't be angry with no one. I don't want no one else to be angry with no one. Anger ain't going to take you nowhere. Ain't going to do but harm you. I'm happy. I'm not happy about going back. I got my wife, my future wife. I got my friends that came along up here with me. I got my family. In 2009, Green's death sentence was changed to life in prison due to a legal technicality. And in 2018, a federal judge ruled prosecutors improperly withheld evidence that police suspected Green was not the shooter. His original conviction was overturned. The state of Florida could choose to retry Green or release him. (laughs) 
In 2021, Green was allowed to go home while his case was being appealed. A year after he was freed, an appellate court ruled against Green, siding with Florida's Attorney General Ashley Moody. When asked why Green should be incarcerated, Moody's office said, quote, the Florida Attorney General's office is charged by statute to represent the state of Florida in upholding judgments and sentences sought by the state attorney in each circuit and imposed by trial courts when they are appealed. The U.S. Supreme Court was his final hope to win his legal battle. The high court declined to hear the case. That means clemency or parole are his only options at freedom. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's as though... You know, you, you've given something to him and, and then and then taking it away again and is it, it's it's gut wrenching. The context of all of this is that he is actually innocent of this crime and there's a tremendous amount of evidence. And I think that that would be part of any um, petition or application um, to get relief. I ain't gonna preach though, but that do make me feel good. <laughs> Green spent his final Sunday as a free man at church, relying on his faith to find hope. If everyone can just believe in themselves the way I believe in myself with the Lord, I mean, then you can understand and can say the things I say by not letting anything come in between you and your faith. Green's attorney tells me they plan on moving forward with seeking parole in the coming months. As for clemency, that requires the support of Governor Ron DeSantis, as well as two out of three cabinet members. And one of them is Florida's attorney general. Guys. Ah, man, what a story. It just it doesn't seem right, but we'll see what happens. Carlos, thank you. Appreciate it. CNN This Morning continues right now. The start of the Dominion Fox News defamation trial abruptly delayed until tomorrow. The settlement would avoid weeks of further embarrassment for Fox, including testimony by its highest profile stars and executives. There's something about being on the eve of trial that can really sober up both parties. It's a reality. Another mass shooting, this time at an Alabama Sweet 16 birthday party. It appeared that someone just started firing from within, and then he just saw the bodies of teenagers dropping. We're going to do exactly what we need to do to ensure justice is brought to those families. These children had very bright futures. They just wanted to have fun. The blame game continues in Sudan over who exactly is responsible for this fresh round of violence. The majority of fighting is happening in the capital of Khartoum as the country's army and a paramilitary group fight for control. People in Sudan want democracy. Sudan needs to return to that path. The Kansas City community protesting after 16-year-old Ralph Yarl was shot. This is not something that has been dismissed in any way. This is something that is getting the full attention of the Kansas City Police Department. I'm listening, and I understand the concern that we are receiving from the community. That right there is a lot of hate. This right here is a lot of love. SpaceX eyeing a 9 a.m. test flight of its most powerful rocket ever. The Starship rocket system is the centerpiece of Musk's goal of commercial space travel to Mars. To think that humans will be walking on Mars in 20 years is completely reasonable. Imagine we were just saying to think 20 years Would you to go. Uh, no, <laughs> but it's still amazing. I think I would. My 
Sienna, at seven years old, talks about living on Mars one day. Isn't that incredible that they're actually, and it maybe will happen in her lifetime? Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. The future is now. The future is now. But we are focusing very closely on what is happening in this small town in Alabama that has become the scene of one of the latest deadly mass shootings in America. Police say four people were killed and 28 others injured during a Sweet 16 birthday party at a dance studio in Dadeville. This happened on Saturday night, and investigators still have not released any details about a possible motive or suspect. Yesterday night, the community held this vigil outside of the church. They hugged each other, they cried together, they prayed, and this morning we're learning more about the victims. Among the dead, a high school football player who was about to graduate and play in college. His sister was the birthday girl. Isabel Rosales is live at the scene of the shooting. Isabel, thanks for being with us again this hour. So many questions this morning, especially about this investigation. Poppy, so many questions. And that's been a part of the frustration with so many here that I've spoken with. They want to know more about what exactly happened at this dance studio right behind me. And they are saying that they're not getting these answers from law enforcement. We did have a press conference uh, and heard from the Alabama law enforcement agency who claimed there is no public safety risk. But as you mentioned there, uh, they have not answered any questions as to the status of the shooter or shooters. We are a village that will come together. Hundreds gathered in Dadeville, Alabama, Sunday evening, seeking solace. We'll never be the same. And answers. Father, we come before you. Lord, with trouble in our hearts. Father, with questions on our mind. After shots rang out at a weekend Sweet 16 party. There are still four lives lost. Four lives were lost in the tragic event that occurred here in Dayton. As far as the injuries, there are 28 individuals that were injured during the course of the incident. On Sunday, hospital officials said at least 15 teenagers were treated for gunshot wounds, including several who are in critical condition. It wasn't a fight. No, it started shooting. One of the victims killed was Phil Stavius Dowdell, a stellar high school football player and the brother of the birthday girl. His coach, at first in disbelief. It can't be true. It just it, it, it cannot be true. Coach Michael Taylor describing Dowdell as a dedicated and gifted athlete. Phil just actually got a uh, scholarship to play football at uh, Jacksonville State University. A second victim has also been identified by family as Kiki Smith, also a senior in high school and the student manager of the track team, looking forward to attending the University of Alabama. These children had very bright futures, the ones that I knew from Dateville. Very, very athletic, very uh, humble children, very respectful children, um, smart. As the investigation continues, police have not released any information about the assailant or a possible motive. What we've dealt with is something that no community should have to endure. I just ask for your patience. They're asking for the community's help. I cannot stress this enough. Ever how minor you think it is, we absolutely need you to share it. As the stunned town of Dadeville grieves, another American city rocked by gun violence. Could you ever imagine an act of violence like this happening in Dadeville? Never. Don't happen. We don't have uh, gun violence. You know what I mean? Unreal, still unreal. 
And President Joe Biden reacting to this mass shooting, issuing a, a statement Sunday, part of it reading, what has our nation come to when children cannot attend a birthday party without fear? This is outrageous and unacceptable. Guys. It is. All of those things. Isabel, thanks very much for being there. Meantime this morning, Kansas City, Missouri, bracing for more protests after a homeowner shot and wounded a 16-year-old boy who accidentally went to the wrong address to pick up his siblings. Ralph Yarl's siblings were at 115th Terrace, but he mistakenly went to a house on 115th Street instead. The shooter was taken into custody and placed on a 24-hour hold, then released while police investigate. Now Yarl is recovering in the hospital in stable condition. His aunt says that he had been looking forward to graduating high school and visiting West Africa before starting college, where he hopes to major in chemical engineering. His aunt also says that he is in the section, he is the section leader in a marching band, a scholar, and one of the top bass clarinet players in Missouri. And we wish him well. We wish him recovery. That's that photo that the world is seeing of him this morning with the bass clarinet that he loves so much. We hope he... It's going to be okay. Yeah, and gets to play the clarinet once again. All right, well, a surprise twist just hours before Fox News was set to go on trial for defamation. A judge has delayed opening statements until tomorrow. The Wall Street Journal reports the network is trying to settle this lawsuit before trial. So Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion. Dominion has accused the network of spreading lies and conspiracy theories about the company and its voting machines after Donald Trump lost the election, even though Fox News hosts and executives allegedly knew that they were false. And some analysts have already dubbed this the media trial of the century. Rupert Murdoch and a whole lineup of Fox News stars, including Tucker Carlson, are expected to testify if the trial moves forward. CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher, live outside the courthouse in Wilmington, Delaware. Good morning to you, Sarah. So you are all ready to go. Everybody's all ready to go, report, to get ready to to do the trial. And then all of a sudden, nothing. Sources are saying that uh, in this case, it is being reported that maybe Fox is looking for a settlement, but will Dominion accept it? What is going on with the delay? Well, we're going to find out more at 9 a.m., Don, because the judge will allow reporters in so he can explain a little bit more about the delay. Now, if Fox were to settle, that would set a huge precedent for a lot of the other defamation cases that it faces. You'll note they face a $2.7 billion defamation case from Smartmatic. So its settlement might be advantageous because they could avoid a huge spectacle here in court. We would avoid being here for six weeks covering a trial, but it would put Fox in a little bit of a precarious legal situation. Now, to your point at the top, Dominion has been holding fast to its claims. It has not wanted to settle because it believes and legal experts believe that it has a strong case. But if we don't get a settlement within the next 24 hours, Don, we will be back here for the finalization of the jury selection for this trial and the opening statements as it begins. Can we move on uh, and talk, Sarah, also about Google and this and AI and this just remarkable interview last night on on 60 Minutes, uh, because that has just terrifying people. I want everyone to listen to this exchange between Google CEO Sundar Pichai and Scott Pelley. There is an aspect of this which we call uh, all of us in the field call it as a black box. You know, you don't fully understand and. You can't quite tell why it said this or why it got wrong. We have some ideas, and our ability to understand this gets better over time. But that's where the state of the art is. You don't fully understand how it works, and yet you've turned it loose on society? 
Yeah, let me put it this way. I don't think we fully understand how a human mind works either. What should we take away from that? Yikes. Well, in a separate interview, Sundar Pichai said that they were in a rush to get this out, in part because of the consumer demand around generative AI. But it does pose some questions, Poppy and Don, about the risk that these technologies pose when we're introducing them and rolling them out. As smart as this stuff is, the smarter it gets, the more dangerous it gets. And you heard that in the interview with the CEO of Google. Even he says he can't fully understand how it works. It kind of harkens back to where we are today here in Delaware. You have this interesting time where information landscape is changing so rapidly, it's hard for us to all wrap our minds yeah. around it. And Scott Pelley did ask him about disseminating more disinformation because of AI, right? And that goes to sort of the core of the, the, law, the case that may go to trial there this week, disinformation, misinformation, lies, etc. Um, I spoke to Sundar Pichai, this is in 2019, about AI. So this was four years ago, and here's what he told me then. We may need to slow down some, some development in some areas. But I think it creates jobs in a way people don't expect either. Slow down some development? You know, sometimes, you know, we may, we may say, well, if it is going to be very disruptive in a certain area, you know, you, you may want to be more thoughtful at the pace at which something happens. But that's not something I would expect the CEO of Google to say. I mean, you're basically, basically saying we have to weigh our technological advancement and competitiveness with what it means for humanity. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think it's important, and I think it's important. That's what society expects us to do. That's what society expects us to do. But now look at the competition they're up against with Microsoft's AI. Where do you think this goes? I remember that interview well, Poppy, because it felt explosive to me. You very rarely hear tech CEOs saying that they need to slow their role when it comes to innovation because it is a very competitive landscape. I think the difference between now and then is that, one, they have a huge competitor in open AI that's starting to roll this stuff out commercially and to the public. And then, two, you also are at a time when tech stocks, even though they're rallying in 2023, saw a huge loss in 2022. Google, of course, had sweeping layoffs along with other companies in the tech sector. They're likely feeling that competitive pressure. Sarah, so you're waiting for Dominion right now uh, to see what happens. So any idea you said we're just all you do now is wait for the judge tomorrow. That's it. Well, we're going to see what he says at 9 a.m. And then we're going to wait and see if there is any sort of settlement news between now and then. If there isn't, we will be going into court tomorrow at 9 a.m. for that jury finalization and for the trial to start. And then it will look like we'll be here for several weeks. Yeah, there's a lot that could happen between now and then. And so we'll check back in at 9 a.m., if not before, with Sarah Fisher. Sarah, thank you so much. Now to the Pentagon leak investigation. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, Jack Tessera, is scheduled to return to court on Wednesday. His arrest last week is raising questions about how the military handles top-secret clearances. Uh, so here's House Intel Chairman Mike Turner. Watch. The access that he was having to this information uh, should have been cut off. He should have never been having access to this level of, of classified information that could hurt the United States. So former Homeland Security official Juliet Kayyem, who oversaw the base where Jack Teixeira worked, writes this. I am at a loss to explain why a 21-year-old member of the state intelligence wing who does not appear to have been working in any federal capacity would need access to that kind of materials whose release has so unnerved the Pentagon. Juliet is with us now, and we should note for people, it's sort of hard for me to believe, 
from 2006 to 2009, you ran this base where he worked. You oversaw the Massachusetts Air National Guard. So you have a real understanding the base, yeah. of what they do. Why would he have this kind of security clearance? Right. So serving as Homeland Security Advisor, I mean, the governor yes. is the decider, but served uh, Governor Deval Patrick at the time. So oversaw the National Guard, their planning. So we have the state National Guard, which reports to the governor. But we have a lot of federal facilities in Massachusetts, including at this Air Force wing. Um, and the... Uh, the men and women in the National Guard serve in the state capacity, but some of them, and this is what we don't know yet, are what we call federalized. They are, they're put into Title Ten status yeah. um, and work essentially for the Pentagon. And it, I have to say, that's probably what happened here, but the Pentagon has been quiet about what his status was. Right. So, but yeah. top secret, right? Yes. I get a lot of people. That's a lot of people. 1.25 <laughs> million people. Yes. Have this clearance. Yes. So let's. I'll, I'll break it down for you. So, so it is a lot of people. The top secret clearance is simply the disclosure of the information that they have would cause sort of grievous harm to the United States interests. Most of them are government, but they are not just the intelligence community. They are. Uh, think about the Commerce Department and some of the stuff that they're working. Uh, state and local government. Some of them in the NYPD. Some of them. Would would have access to classified information. Then you have our contractors, and a lot of them are yeah. the people building the planes and the and the and the and the networks that keep us safe. And then other is sort of your your catch-all at this stage, but it would include uh, private citizens and okay. and others who may have it. I would just note in 2019, he would have been about 19 years old getting yeah, this exactly. clearance. That's um, exactly right. In terms of access, what's interesting is one defense official told CNN this: "It's not like your regular IT guy. Teacher, yeah. it was not like your regular IT guy where you call the desk." and they come fix your computer. They're working on a highly classified system, so they require that clearance. Yes. So they require the clearance because he's essentially a pass-through. So if anything were to happen, he yeah. may be exposed to the information. But he doesn't need to know the content. He's not doing anything with the content. So the way I describe it is my, my sort of my uh, background. So I had top secret when I was in government. I didn't have access to everything. There'd be no reason for me. So I would know, say, that there was a terrorism threat. I wouldn't need to know what are the sources of methods that they found out or that we had a spy in a, in a terrorist um, organization. It appears that he had access to all of that and then takes it out. So that's the the access question is one. And then his handling of it is another. Exactly. I just keep coming back to to your point exactly, which is just because you have the clearance doesn't mean you need to get all this stuff. Couldn't it be shared on a need to know basis? That's exactly right. And I guess what we don't know yet is did he need access to all of it simply because of his role as essentially an I.T. Pass through, and then that's something that the Defense Department is going to have to determine whether that's actually smart. Does he actually need? Do do those people actually need access? Uh, the 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 Pentagon is going to have to get this in line, and whether he was in National Guard status or federal status, because this sensitive information and how we get the information. And now that it's disclosed, is not only a, a, a threat to us, mm-hmm. our allies are looking at us and thinking, you know, what the heck? What do we want to share? Yes, exactly. What do we want to say? Exactly. Juliet, thank you very much. Thank Fascinating. you. The House Judiciary Committee is taking a field trip and holding a hearing right here in New York City on crime. How city officials are responding next. Plus, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis banning certain books from libraries and restricting abortion after six weeks. Why he is now losing the support of a Republican mega donor ahead.
This morning, Congress back in session after a two-week recess. Lawmakers set to face a fast-approaching deadline to address the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling limit. Also today, the House Judiciary Committee, chaired by Trump ally Jim Jordan, will be holding a field hearing here in New York City targeting District Attorney Alvin Bragg. It comes just over two weeks after the former president was indicted in connection to Bragg's investigation into Trump's alleged role in a hush money payment scheme involving adult film star Stormy Daniels. According to the committee, today's hearing will zero in on how Bragg's, quote, pro-crime anti-victim policies have led to an increase in violent crime and a dangerous community for New York City residents. CNN's Sarah Murray live outside the Javits Federal Building in New York City with the very latest on this. Good morning, Sarah. This is just the latest in a uh, growing feud between Bragg and Jordan. What is today going to look like? Please tell us. We are going to see an escalation of that feud today. I mean, Republicans on this committee are seeking to highlight victims of violent crime, including a bodega clerk that Bragg's office had charged with second-degree murder, later dropped those charges amid a public outcry from people who felt this was self-defense from a clerk who is uh, protecting himself in an altercation. So that's what Republicans are going to focus on. Democrats are going to try to pivot this to talk about gun violence. We're going to hear from Mayor Eric Adams before this hearing today, as well as with the top Democrat on this committee. You know, Eric Adams already said on another network this morning that this hearing is going to be the height of hypocrisy. But the broader backdrop here is this is really Republicans trying to give cover to Donald Trump, trying to stick it to Alvin Bragg on his own turf right after Alvin Bragg brought this indictment. And as Republicans are trying to investigate the investigation into Donald Trump. Uh, uh, And the mayor was on Friday saying that he believed that this was just a deflection from the real issues. He was on this very program. How is Bragg responding to the hearing Jordan has put together, Sarah? Well, the DA's office is unamused. And in one statement, they said, if Chairman Jordan truly cared about public safety, he could take a short drive to Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Akron, or Toledo in his home state instead of using taxpayer dollars to travel hundreds of miles out of his way. And again, this comes after Bragg has sued Jordan and the Judiciary Committee, saying that they are trying to meddle in his criminal investigation because Jordan and other Republicans have asked Bragg and other former prosecutors in his office for documents and testimony. So this is a sort of rolling feud that will continue here in New York today, Don. And Sarah Murphy, Murray will be covering this rolling feud. Thank you, Sarah. We appreciate it. <laughs> New this morning, a major Republican donor is now turning on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, halting his support because of the potential 2024's hopeful, hopefuls extreme positions on social issues. That is the reasoning that Thomas Petterfi gave. Let's talk about what he told the Financial Times, quote, because of his, meaning DeSantis's stance on abortion and book banning, myself and a bunch of friends are holding our powder dry. So who are they holding it for? Michael Smirconish is here, CNN political commentator and host of CNN Smirconish. Good morning. Hi, Michael. Hi. Hi. Money talks. Money matters. Is this a big deal? It could be a big deal. I mean, I think Ron DeSantis right now is checking all the boxes in terms of what you do to try and secure a Republican nomination, not necessarily win a general election. And I think that's what this donor is focused on. Can I just say bigger picture? It looks like this is really going to happen, meaning Trump and DeSantis, because I've had my doubts. I I have to believe that Ron DeSantis gave pause, said to himself, I'm 44. I've been twice elected. 
governor of a big state, an important state, do I really want to get in a cage with this guy? The polls have been consistent, Trump at about 50, DeSantis at about 25, but it looks like he's doing all the things that one has to do to really run for president as a Republican. So I guess this is the start. Oh, so you think it's going to, you think it's going to happen? You say. Yeah, Don, I think it's going to happen. I I think when you sign a six-week abortion bill ban in Florida, I think when you reject an AP course for African-American studies in the state of Florida, I think when your super PAC, even though you've got to stay disconnected from them, runs an anti-Trump ad, I think you really are getting into the race. But I continue to believe that Donald Trump's real opponents are not named DeSantis and Pence and Haley and Scott. They are named Bragg. Bragg. They are named Merrick Garland. They are named Jack Smith and they're named Fonnie Willis. Yeah. You mentioned the ad, the Super PAC ad. Let's play it and then we'll discuss. Here it is. Donald Trump is being attacked by a Democrat prosecutor in New York. So why is he spending millions attacking the Republican governor of Florida? Trump's stealing pages from the Biden-Pelosi playbook, repeating lies about Social Security. Trump should fight Democrats, not lie about Governor DeSantis. What happened to Donald Trump? I mean, seems like he's running. Why run that ad if he's not running? You know, Don, what's interesting to me is the very first line, which says that Donald Trump is being attacked by a Democratic prosecutor. They say Democrat prosecutor in New York. He No, he's been indicted, right? But the indictment thus far of Trump in the Stormy Daniels related case has been a political advantage for Donald Trump. So it's like they don't want to hit him too hard with the fact that he's it's crazy when you stop and think about it. They don't want to hit him hard for being indicted because that has bolstered his fundraising, meaning Trump's fundraising raising. It's interesting just also what happened over the weekend at this donor retreat. And and I think, you know, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's interview with Jake on State of the Union yesterday was also really telling in terms of essentially saying move on, right? Move on, Republican Party, focus on the issues. And then Governor Chris Sununu saying about Trump, I don't think he can win in 2024. Well, I think that a lot of the major donors are keeping their powder dry, right? They probably would like to move on from Donald Trump, but Trump has has raised tens of millions of dollars since being indicted. And he's done it on a grassroots basis, almost Bernie Sanders style, except on the GOP side of the aisle. So, you know, they don't know how to deal with him. They don't know how to derail him. And he remains consistent in the polls. Who's they? Uh, they meaning I think that the major Republican donors would rather I Poppy, you know what I really believe? Yes. I believe that the intelligentsia of the GOP, if they could go behind a curtain and vote yay or nay on Donald Trump, it's a big nay vote. But they're scared to death of the base. And therefore, the emperor might have no clothes, but nobody's going to say it. Yeah. Michael, can we just go back real quickly to this um, abortion bill that Ron DeSantis signed? Because it's not the abortion issue is not working and not polling well for Republicans. So he maybe he thinks it's going to bode well for him, but it doesn't it doesn't look that way. Hey, Don, here's something else to think about twofold. One, he signed it in private. He signed it in private. If he wanted to make a big deal out of it, he would have handled it differently. But think about Donald Trump. I mean, if you want to if you want to take credit for the overturning of Roe versus Wade, Donald Trump is the guy who ought to be able to do it because he appointed three conservative Supreme Court justices. 
And yet he doesn't. He doesn't say anything about it yeah. because I believe Trump recognizes that the issue is a net loser in a general yeah. election. But general election. Remember when he was running, he told Leslie Saul in 60 Minutes, I will work and appoint pro-life judges. Yeah. But you're right. DeSantis signed that bill at like 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Right. No, no cameras on him. No, no trying to get that in the headlines. Michael, thanks. Very thanks, much. Michael. I'll be listening to you today and watching you on the weekends. All right. See you. Bye bye. Thank you. So this morning, SpaceX expected to test its most powerful rocket yet. So why is CEO Elon Musk, Elon Musk, telling people not to get too excited? I love this song. Look at that. That's the moon. In just over an hour, a Starship rocket is set to lift off from SpaceX launch pad in southern Texas. The company says that this is a test launch for a ship that could eventually bring people to Earth's orbit, the moon, and someday Mars. Can you believe it? But yesterday, the CEO, Elon Musk, warned people not to get too excited. He said there is a good chance that SpaceX will delay that launch. CNN's senior national correspondent, Mr. Ed Lavendera, live for us in South Padre Island, Texas, with the very latest. This is exciting, but we're not supposed to get too excited. So what? CNN? Well, it's exciting because we don't really know what's going to happen here over the next few hours. But there are thousands of people here on the southern edge of South Padre Island. We're about five miles away from that launch pad. The window for SpaceX to launch this rocket opens about 7 a.m. Central Time. They have about three hours to get that done. Uh, SpaceX is saying that they're looking around 8 a.m. Central Time for a launch here. But the way Elon Musk is talking about this, this could be a spectacular success or an epic fireworks show. The SpaceX Starship is the most powerful rocket ever built. It's 400 feet tall. The super heavy booster is packed with 33 engines and it will attempt to push the uncrewed Starship spacecraft, which sits on top of the rocket booster, into space. If the rocket launches properly, the spacecraft will separate less than three minutes into the flight and travel east from South Texas and go much of the way around the Earth before splashing into the Pacific Ocean near Hawaii. But hours before this scheduled launch, SpaceX founder Elon Musk worked to lower expectations to the point that he seemed to be bracing for catastrophic failure. Success is not what should be expected. Um, that, that would be insane. This vehicle could make it all the way to orbit or, or it may blow up on the pad. There's a million ways this rocket could fail. SpaceX has waited more than a year for the final government clearance to launch this rocket. The Starship rocket system is the centerpiece of Musk's goal of commercial space travel to the moon and beyond, to Mars. It comes two weeks after NASA unveiled the four astronauts who will fly around the moon next year as part of the space agency's Artemis mission. NASA has awarded SpaceX contracts and options of more than $3 billion to use Starship to ferry future Artemis astronauts to the moon. NASA Artemis II commander Reed Wiseman spoke with CNN about the importance of this partnership for humans to eventually reach Mars. I think we will get there. The amount of private-public partnerships going on. Uh, SpaceX is building our, our lander for the moon. They're working on Starship right now. We have commercial space is, is just doing amazing things right now. So to think that humans will be walking on Mars in 20 years is completely reasonable. Testing on this rocket system started several years ago, and it's resulted in many breakthroughs. Two, one, ignition. 
ammunition. Abort. But also some explosive setbacks. Thousands of people are expected to crowd the beaches miles from the launch pad to catch a glimpse of this rocket launch. In the crowd will be Yemi Akinyemidele. The Czech Nigerian artist has already been selected as one of the first eight passengers who will eventually fly in the Starship capsule on its first commercial flight around the moon. Are you looking at it as one day I'm going to be sitting in that rocket and I want to know what it's going to be like? For the first time I'm going to see how it looks from close up and I will be able to imagine how it would feel, but just imagine how it would feel to, to sit in it and be leaving the, the Earth. So Don, here's a breakdown, a base case scenario, uh, the timeline of how this will work is after the rocket launches, the booster will separate from uh, the rocket ship on top, and um, that will land in the Gulf of Mexico, then uh, the, the Starship will continue to make almost one complete orbit around the Earth, as we mentioned, landing in the Pacific Ocean. Both of those pieces will land in the water, and company officials tell us that there are no plans to recover them, so they will sink to the bottom of the waters. Don. Wow. And who's got the best seat in the house? Ed Lavendera. Eddie. Not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> Eddie, do you know Yemi is one of my best friends? Did he tell you? I, I heard some. I heard something about that some yesterday. He was unbelievably <laughs> delightful <laughs> he, and uh, absolutely fascinating guy. He's an amazing human, and I am not. He has had this goal to go to the moon for years. He told us about five years ago he was going to go to the moon. And I said, yeah, Yemi, if, if someone's going to, a civilian, it's going to be you. So it's amazing to see how far he's come, Ed. Awesome. Well, his story is fascinating. Yeah. You know, he, he said he grew up with barely any electricity in his house and as a young child in, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia. And right. now he is, you know, several years away from traveling to the moon. He's also my children. He stayed with us for a few weeks earlier this year. He's my children's favorite human. You can imagine how much fun he is with kids. Yeah. So awesome, he's awesome. a great guy, I think. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, he's great. So I'd love to meet him, and you say you wouldn't go. I would, would never. Go. You, I, would go. I know you would. You're yeah. fearless. Would you guys go? Would you go? No. To the moon, everyone, no. crew's shaking their head. No. No, I'm good here. I'm good. Wow, look at that. Uh, look at that. And this morning, we're live in El Paso, Texas, where officials are bracing for another surge of migrants. Plus, we're taking a look at their dangerous journey to the border. Vous attendez votre parent? Ils sont où? The number of migrants braving the dangerous and deadly trek through a stretch of jungle known as the Darien Gap on their way to the southern border could soar to 400,000 this year. That is according to new reports from two U.N. agencies. Many of these migrants are running from economic and humanitarian disasters trying to make their way to the United States. So a team of CNN journalists made that five-day trek in February alongside them, documenting it all, including the horrors of the trail. The full story of their journey aired last night on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. Here's a look at a small part of that with our Nick Payton Walsh. This route is littered with obstacles, choke points and lines. Hours on their feet without the comfort of knowing you're at least moving. Forever damp, striding, waiting. What's crazy is over the last hour, we probably haven't travelled directly about more than 50 to 100 yards. But this is just one enormous 
traffic jam of people through the jungle. And the sad fact is the more of them that do it, the more they slow each other down at bottlenecks like this and the greater risk they put themselves at. Time and time again, though, this ordeal summons something beautiful from people that mirrors nature here. A glue binding them to each other to help cajole, care sometimes for strangers, of survival, survival together. It's the best of us and doesn't care what passport you're carrying, but it cannot alter the pain. How are you finding the road? So the migrants who do compete or complete, excuse me, the treacherous journey to the U.S. border meet more obstacles than they arrive. We're going to get to see Ms. Rosa Flores. She's live in El Paso, Texas, on the border with more on the trek and what happens once migrants make it through. Rosa, um, good morning. We spoke with you. You were in front of this same shelter just one year ago. What are you seeing now? Yeah, Don, the last time we were here was actually in January, and there were hundreds of migrants sleeping on the street. Let me show you what we can see now. There's several dozen, actually, sleeping on the street. This is just outside Sacred Heart Church, which is a migrant shelter. I talked to the priest that runs the shelter late yesterday, and this is what he feared, he told me. He said that his shelter was already full and that he feared that some people were going to have to sleep on the street. And that's exactly what we're seeing this morning. And he said that he hasn't seen this since January. Where are we? Estamos en eh, la Casa del Migrante. Father Javier Calvillo runs the Casa del Migrante shelter in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, across the border from El Paso, Texas, and says this is one of about 40 shelters in the city. ¿De dónde son ustedes? And that most of the migrants here are from Venezuela. The top nationality is Venezuela. Yes. And the majority, if not all, are part of the skyrocketing number of migrants trekking through the dangerous jungle passage between Colombia and Panama, known as the Darien Gap. Migrant crossings there have jumped from under 600 in 2010 to nearly a quarter million last year. This year, nearly 90,000 migrants have made the trek so far, all of them on their way to the U.S. southern border. The Biden administration took notice, and alongside Colombia and Panama, it launched a two-month campaign to curb the flow of migration. We must do more to discourage the dangerous journey. 
At the U.S. southern border, the humanitarian crisis that left hundreds of migrants sleeping on the streets of El Paso in December and January has effectively jumped the border to Mexico, immigration advocates say. Emotions there? Boiled over last month when a large group of migrants rushed the international bridge to El Paso over frustrations with the cumbersome U.S. asylum process forcing them to wait in Mexico. That dissatisfaction stemmed from the Trump-era pandemic public health rule known as Title 42, which allows immigration agents to swiftly expel migrants back to Mexico. The Biden administration's expansion of that rule to Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Haitians and Cubans, and the recent launch of an app that allows migrants to set up appointments to enter the U.S. legally pending immigration proceedings under an exception to Title 42. More than 23,000 migrants are in northern Mexican cities waiting as Title 42 is set to expire next month, according to officials and community leaders. In Tijuana, about 10,000 are waiting. In Reynosa and Matamoros, about 9,800. And in Ciudad Juarez, up to 3,500. The top 21 countries where they're coming from include places outside the Western Hemisphere. As for who is responsible for the migrant crisis, which appears to ping-pong across borders, Father Calvillo says... Juego de las políticas. El juego, the game, the game of politics. Both the U.S. and Mexico, for what he calls the game of politics and policies. Now, I'm in the alley in the back of that church, and take a look, there's more people who are sleeping out here, that there is no space for them inside the shelter. Now, the Department of Homeland Security has said that the Biden administration has launched a comprehensive immigration strategy that is fair and efficient, and that it allows for legal pathways to enter into the United States, and that includes the CBP-1 app, which you saw in that story just now. Now, U.S. Customs and Border Protection says that the CBP-1 app is working as intended and that tens of thousands of migrants have already used it to set up appointments to enter into the United States. But uh, Poppy and Don, you can see that there are still migrants here outside. And again, we haven't seen this since January. And Poppy, you probably remember this very clearly because we were on the air at the same time. Yes. There were hundreds of people. Now, yes, there's fewer people. But is this the spike before the end of Title 42? We don't know. We'll see. That's the big question. Back to you guys. Yeah. Thank you, Rosa. A new report this morning finds that there was another sharp increase in anti-Semitic incidents last year. We're going to break it, break it all down for you with the CEO of the National and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Mr. Jonathan Greenblatt. There he is after the break. Tonight marks the start of Holocaust Remembrance Day. Across the world, victims of the Holocaust will be remembered and the survivors will be honored. This morning, new sobering data is revealing a significant increase in anti-Semitic incidents worldwide. In the U.S. specifically, the Anti-Defamation League recorded nearly 3,700 anti-Semitic incidents in 2022, compared to more than 2,700 in 2021, a record year in its own right. So joining us now, Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO and the National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. We're so happy to have you on to discuss this. We wish it was good news. Unfortunately, it's not. What is behind this? Well, Don, I think you could imagine anti-Semitism 
is the canary in the coal mine of democracy. And this new data, which we're releasing today in partnership with Tel Aviv University, shows a frightening and unfortunately almost predictable increase in anti-Semitism worldwide. So we saw across Europe, in places like Belgium, Hungary, Italy, Switzerland, Spain, places like Australia, all around the world, you're seeing this rise of attacks, vandalism, violence perpetrated against Jewish people. There are some places that I want to talk about where it's actually decreasing, but let's, yeah. uh, I wonder what kind of attacks are happening now and who are the, the victims? Well, it's interesting you ask. I mean, one of the trends is certainly Orthodox Jews, right. Haredi Jews who are visibly Jewish, wearing a kippah, maybe a black hat, maybe wearing a wig. As we see here in New York, particularly in Brooklyn, the Stamford Hill neighborhood in London, they bear the brunt of physical abrasive anti-Semitism. You talked about what happened here. It examines uh, these assaults in, in, in New York City. Um, the city recorded the most assaults in the U.S. Yeah. We've talked about some of those, those incidents. Why does this continue, you think, Jonathan? What do you think what really needs to change here? Well, I think there are a few things that are driving this, and there's some very interesting data in this report, yeah. one of which is that you know, anti-Semitism remains the go-to tactic of authoritarians and extremists, from Putin trying to bring anti-Semitism into the Ukraine war and his claims about denazification, which white supremacists here in America picked up, or we like the Houthis in Yemen exhibiting some of the most vicious anti-Semitism. Don, there are no Jews in Yemen, but that is the Iranian regime using their proxies there to push out global propaganda. So it's a go-to tactic of the bad guys. Again, visible Jews are being targeted. And I think, why is it happening? You see this polarization in all of these democratic societies. Yeah. You see extremists feeling emboldened around the world. And then social media continues to exacerbate and intensify the problem. On the other hand, you talked about the countries where it's increasing. Yeah. Countries uh, including Germany, uh, Austria, France, yep. UK, Canada, Argentina, they saw a decline in the number of anti-Semitic yeah. incidents yeah. compared to 2021. Yeah. Are leaders there doing the right thing? Are they doing something differently than the leaders in places? Where That's a doing? great question. I think yes. So like even in France and Germany where it came down slightly, it was already at historic levels like we see here in America. But when people in positions of authority, elected officials, university presidents, people with authority show up, speak out, that makes a big difference. It sends a signal, it deters people, and it brings people together. An attack on one is an attack on all. And thank you so much, Jonathan, for bringing us this information. Let's hope we get a handle on this. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. CNN This Morning continues right now. My nephew is alive yeah. and he is healing. It is not the story that that individual intended for us to tell. Yeah. That right there is a lot of hate. Yeah. This right here is a lot of love. Yeah. Hmm. Love versus hate is the point they were making. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Caitlin is off. Protests and outrage in Kansas City after a homeowner shot a black teenager. Police say the teen went to the wrong house by mistake when he was just trying to pick up his younger brothers. Plus, we got to talk to you about the Fox News Dominion trial. It is delayed 
There's new reporting that the network is trying to settle out of court with Dominion Voting Systems. We're live outside the courthouse for you. Also brand new CNN reporting this morning. We are learning Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is going to make some changes to his financial disclosure forms after a real estate deal with the GOP mega donor came to light. So this morning, calls for justice across the country after a Kansas City teen went to the wrong home to pick up his younger brothers and the homeowner shot him. 16-year-old Ralph Yarl is recovering in the hospital in stable condition. His family describes him as a typical high schooler who loves to play the bass clarinet. He has been looking forward to starting college and majoring in chemical engineering. Police say Yarl's family say that he was given the address 115th Terrace, but he mistakenly went to a home at 115th Street instead. The shooter has been released, and there is sparking protest nation wide right now and outrage nationwide. Sydney's Camilla Bernal, live for us in Los Angeles with more on this. Good morning to you, Camilla. What is the status on this investigation? Good morning, Don. Uh, authorities say more is needed to go forward and they need a statement from Ralph Jarl. Uh, he is doing well. He's in the hospital. He's recovering. But the family says that it, this is a long road, especially when it comes to his mental and his emotional health. This is a teenager that is being described as friendly and well-mannered. He loves music and the family says plays multiple instruments, always had one in hand. He was dreaming about graduating and going to West Africa. All of this, of course, is going to be a lot more difficult now because he went to 115th Street instead of Terrace. He was just a block away from his brothers when he was shot. The Kansas City community protesting on Sunday after 16-year-old Ralph Yarl was shot as he was trying to pick up his siblings last week. Police say Jarl accidentally went to the wrong address where he was shot and seriously wounded by the homeowner. Officers arrived at the scene after a neighbor called 911 and took the homeowner immediately into custody. Our heart goes out to the juvenile victim and more than anything to make sure that this child um, and this child's family knows that there are people working hard, a number of people working hard to make sure there is justice for this person. The homeowner, who has not been identified, was released after 24 hours pending further investigation. The police department says they're waiting to obtain a formal statement from the victim and further forensic evidence. I want everyone to know that I'm listening and I understand the concern that, that we are receiving from the community. The information that we have now, it does not say that, that it's racially motivated. That's still an active investigation. But as a chief of police, I do recognize the racial components of this case. I do recognize and understand um, the community's concern. Jarl's aunt says her nephew loves music and is a section leader in his marching band. She says his goal is to attend Texas A&M University to study chemical engineering. Civil rights attorneys Lee Merritt and Benjamin Crump are representing the victim and his family and demanding swift action and are calling the shooting horrendous and unjustifiable. As a mother of three children, this enrages me. And protesters gathering Sunday outside the home where Yara was shot, demanding justice. He is alive. He is healing. Yes. So I just want to tell you, thank you for being here because my nephew is alive. 
And the homeowner was released. State law says you either have to charge someone or release them after 24 hours. And authorities here say they need more evidence. They want to talk to this teenager and they want to continue this investigation. So he was released. And it's part of the reason why people are so upset this morning and why they're asking for justice. Don? A lot more to unfold in this investigation. Thank you, Camilla Bernal. Well, a Sweet 16 birthday party in a small Alabama town has become the latest scene of a deadly mass shooting in America. Police confirmed four people were murdered, 28 others were injured at a dance studio in Dadeville Saturday night. They haven't released details about a potential sus- suspect or motive. We're learning more about the victims of this morning. Falstavius Dowdell was a high school football star. He was getting ready to graduate next month and play football in college. His sister was the birthday girl. His football coach tells CNN he was like a son. Phil just told me about a month ago. So, Coach, if anything ever happened to me, even when I go to college, take care of my two sisters. I never dreamed that he was talking about this. Yeah. Kiki Smith was also a high school senior and a student manager for the track team. Her family says she was looking forward to attending the University of Alabama. The heartbroken community held a vigil outside of a church yesterday night. Hundreds of people showed up to hug, to pray, to cry together. The United States has now suffered 162 mass shootings this year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. That is an average of more than one and a half shootings every day. That means more shootings than days this year so far. President Biden also released a statement saying, what has our nation come to when children can't go to a birthday party without fear? This is outrageous and unacceptable. Americans agree and want lawmakers to act on common sense gun reform. We promise we will keep covering this. 162 so far. Other news now, a surprise announcement right before the Fox News defamation trial was set to begin. The judge has delayed opening statements until tomorrow. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting the cable giant is trying to reach a last minute settlement deal with Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion is suing Fox News for one point six billion dollars. The companies accuse the network of spreading flat out lies and conspiracy theories about Dominion and its voting machines after Donald Trump lost the election even though Fox News hosts and executives allegedly knew they were false. It is a potentially historic case with huge implications for the news media and free speech. Marshall Cohen, our intrepid reporter and producer, outside the courthouse for us in Wilmington, Delaware. Good morning, Marshall. What else can you tell us about this delay? What happened? Don, some drama here in Delaware. We were expecting opening statements today, but that's not going to happen. Late last night, the judge announced what he called a one-day delay to the beginning of this historic trial. The statement did not give any reason, which of course has triggered massive speculation about a possible settlement. We've checked in with Dominion. We've checked in with Fox. No one is commenting publicly. People are trying to read the tea leaves here, and there may have been a clue last night from the Wall Street Journal, as you mentioned, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And they reported that push that Fox, excuse me, is making a late push for a settlement. So we will have to wait and see how this unfolds. There will be a brief hearing today in about one hour in the Delaware Superior Court right behind me. We're expecting the judge to open court, announce the delay, and that should probably be it for today. Don. All right, and Marshall, we will be watching. We appreciate it, and we'll see you soon. Marshall Cohen.
New this morning, CNN has learned the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas intends to amend his financial disclosures to reflect a real estate deal he made with a Republican mega donor. This was back in 2014. So this deal, you'll remember, we reported on it last week between Justice Thomas and the Dallas real estate magnate Harlan Crow was first reported by ProPublica. It involves the sale of three properties that Thomas owned in Savannah, Georgia. None of those were disclosed at the time. Here with her new reporting is our Supreme Court reporter, Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, good morning to you. Phenomenal reporting, uh, just fascinating. You've learned that Justice Clarence Thomas will amend these disclosure forms as he is facing mounting criticism. What does that actually mean? What will happen? Right. Well, he has decided, according to my source, that he is going to amend to reflect that the sale of these three properties that he owned with his family members, one of the properties where his mother still lives to Harlan Crow, uh, that uh, mega donor who's given so much to the GOP, none of that uh, was disclosed. Remember, Crow, as you said, he was in the news earlier because he had paid for lavish trips for both Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas at the time, Thomas uh, said in that instance that he didn't have to disclose because of the way the ethics rules were written at the time. But now my source says he's decided he is going to disclose here. That's fascinating. Is that him acknowledging a mistake? Is that your read? Well, so here's what the source said. He said, um, that Thomas didn't think he had to disclose, and here's why. He and Ginny put in between fifty dollars and $70,000 into his mother's home before the sale. When the sale occurred, his share was only $44,000. So he figured that since there was a loss for him, it didn't have to go into the investment section of these financial disclosure forms. My source said that Thomas himself fills out these forms with the help of some aides. But it is clear from the forms that you do have to list a transaction, irrespective of whether or not uh, there was a profit. Uh, Crow told us last week that he did this because he wants to one day build a museum for Clarence Thomas. Um, and we did also learn this one new detail, and that is, is that when the deal went into effect, Clarence Thomas's mother was able to continue to live rent-free. She lives there now. She's 94 years old. And all she has to pay is taxes and insurance, mm -hmm. Poppy. I think that is interesting, the fact that his mother was continuing to live on the property after the sale. I, I think yeah. just big picture, Ariane, if you could, for folks here, why this matters so much. Because it's well, look, a Supreme Court justice. Well, it's a Supreme Court justice, but also the Supreme Court itself has yeah. been under the spotlight because it has um, so many people saying that it's becoming more and more political in these closely divided opinions that are going down along ideological lines. A lot of people have criticized the court because it does not have an ethics rule that is directed just at the justices. So now, again, we have a new revelation here that's going to increase pressure. We've already got Democrats on the Hill writing letters to Chief Justice John Roberts wanting hearings. This puts this court in the political spotlight again. And Poppy, that's one place it hates to be. It does not yeah. want to be in the center of this political yeah. debate. It also raises a question, what sort of ethics checks should there be on the court where there, there yeah. aren't any internally and there aren't any from Congress at this point? Ariane, great reporting. Thank you. Thanks. The death toll is rising due to fierce fighting between Sudan's army and a paramilitary group. What's at the center of the conflict? Straight ahead.
A senior ISIS leader is believed to be dead after a U.S. helicopter raid in Syria. According to a U.S. Central Command spokesperson, the ISIS leader was responsible for planning terror attacks in the Middle East and in Europe. Two others were killed in the raid. That's part of an ongoing U.S. campaign targeting the terror group in Iraq and Syria and preventing the organization from regaining its numbers and strength. The deadly violence is continuing this morning in Sudan. They're now entering their third day of this just stunning violence. Two rival generals are battling for control of the country. That is in the capital of Khartoum, and these clashes erupted after months of tension between the leaders of Sudan's army and a paramilitary group. Nearly 100 people have been reported killed, hundreds more wounded. This fighting is intensifying in the capital. Secretary of State Antony Blinken weighed in on all of this. There is a shared deep concern uh, about the fighting, uh, the violence that's going on in Sudan, the threat that that poses to civilians, that it poses to the Sudanese nation and potentially poses even to, uh, to the region. Arnhem Al-Bagger joins us live from London. You have been reporting on this extensively for years, frankly. And this has been bubbling, this tension, since 2019 and the popular revolution. The question was which one of these generals would win out. What are you learning? Well, the fighting has only, as you say, continued to intensify this morning. In every single phone call that we have carried out over the last 72 hours, uh, Poppy, I have been able to hear heavy weaponry in the background as we speak to Sudanese cowering on their floors with their children. We were able to verify many of these incidents. And I want to show you a heat map that shows just how widespread across Khartoum the capital of Sudan, these incidents now have become, and it's only getting worse. We have been able to verify that at least a dozen hospitals have been directly targeted, which, of course, is in violation of humanitarian law by the parties on the ground. Uh, I, I want to let you listen to what, what one of the doctors told us, Poppy. Here she is. We were living in a real battle. Can you believe that we left the hospital and left behind children in incubators and patients in intensive care without any medical personnel? I can't believe that I survived dying at the hospital, where the smell of death is everywhere. Doctors' organizations tell us that they are unable to reach so many of the wounded and are unable to bury most of the dead. Um, it is an absolutely um, appalling situation, uh, Poppy, and it's heartbreaking to hear it in people's voices when we speak to them. Nima, if I can jump in here, it's done. How long could this go on? That, that is the question, especially as it seems to be intensifying. We know that Russia had given significant support to both these men in the past, specifically Commander Mohammed Hamdan Degalu, the head of the paramilitary group. There is real concern that Russian equipment and Russian training is allowing for him to hold out against Sudan's armed forces, which outnumbers him. And, and again, it speaks to the malevolence of Russia's influence in much of Africa and specifically in, in Sudan, that this has come to 
this point, this really is a result of, of Russia's power play and their exploitation of, of Sudan's gold resources that someone like Commander Mohammed Hamdan Degalu, a paramilitary force leader with a, a long stretch of human rights violations to his name, could be in this position to hold the country hostage, Don. Uh, you know, my, my family are, are, are in Sudan currently. It is absolutely terrifying, and I know that they are in a better situation than so many of those people who are, are living through what we're showing on air. If you could talk to us a little bit more about the toll of the people, your family is there. Go on, please. Talk to us about it. I, I spoke to my mom just before I got on air. They're, they're running out of food. Most shops are closed. Uh, in fact, all shops are closed. The banks are closed. There was uh, um, an attempt at a humanitarian corridor or a, a claim at a humanitarian corridor yesterday when... Um, one of the people uh, working for my parents was able to get to the shop and get some flour. It's also, this is the last week of the holy month, Ramadan. Uh, I spoke to some of my cousins who were lying on the floor um, with their children. And, and I say this with the awareness that my family is still incredibly lucky because they are not in areas um, neighboring garrisons, which is where some of the fighting has been strongest. But frankly, um, there's a garrison four streets away from my parents' house. If it's, it's really, really um, terrifying. I mean, my parents would hate that I'm getting emotional because, of course, they are just angry like so many Sudanese people are. And in fact, they're probably holding it together better than those of us stuck on the outside looking in on this. But, you know, we have to remind our viewers that these are the same men who subverted Sudan's nascent democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, we all remember those pictures of thousands of Sudanese, tens of thousands of Sudanese, risking their lives. And now these same men are holding an entire country hostage and the world seems only able to look on. Well, Nima, we appreciate the, uh, your candor with that. We, we're wishing your family well, as well as everyone Thank else. You. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. We Thank really you. appreciate that. It, it is what makes Nema's reporting stand out. So outstanding. Because she makes you understand the human toll and she feels it and her family is living it and experiencing it right now. And it, it is so important that we have her. Everything you just said. All absolutely. of it. Bowing out, pausing plans and law support, the latest shakeups in the 2024 Republican race for president. Okay, so there's been yet another round of shakeups in the potential 2024 Republican race for president. Trump's former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, says he's not running because the time is, quote, not right. All right. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin is pausing potential plans so that he can focus on flipping his state's legislature. That is according to The New York Times. And Donald Trump's potential biggest challenge of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has reportedly lost the support of a GOP mega donor. That billionaire, Thomas Petterfee told the Financial Times, quote, because of his stance on abortion and book banning, myself and a bunch of friends are holding our powder dry. So joining us now, Stan Hernandez, a political analyst and national politics reporter for the New York Times. Hello, sir. I almost said good evening because I'm used to talking to you that <laughs> night for such a long time. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so how is this going? Do you think this is going to affect Ron DeSantis now that having this major mega donor up Someone who I think it was, gave like $8 million to yeah. Republicans last year or last um, 
cycle? Yeah. How is this going to affect him? I mean, this is it's a dual problem. It's the problem of the donor stepping away, but it's really the problem of the donor telling everyone they're stepping away because it really speaks to a, a signaling shift on the candidacy of Ron DeSantis. There was real excitement. There was real energy coming out of the midterms when he was seen as the, as the preeminent other than Donald Trump in this race. But over the last couple months, as Donald Trump's hold, uh, hold on the Republican base has continued, as we haven't seen the indictments drop off Donald Trump's support, and as DeSantis has been challenged by other candidates in the race and had some stances that really caused some blowback. I'm thinking about his position on Ukraine initially and particularly this abortion ban, a uh, six-week abortion ban that they just pushed through the Florida state legislature. He has been squeezed by the pressure to appease Donald Trump's base and for a donor class that's looking ahead to a general election and saying, we thought you were not like the MAGA types. We thought that you were going to represent a different style of Republicans. And he has chosen to really mold himself in the fashion of someone more like a Ted Cruz or a Tom Cotton uh, a style rather than being someone who was going to represent a full rejection of Trumpism. And I think for some of those donors, that's what they were looking for Ron DeSantis to be maybe a year ago. It's interesting that abortion yeah. is the thing that got... You know, this don't. 100 percent. And book banning, because that's like isn't like book abortion has been the stance, right? Yeah. Banning abortion for Republicans forever. Book banning now and the whole CRT thing has been a really galvanizing um, component for Republicans. But it's been galvanizing among the Republican primary electorate, but we haven't seen it become galvanizing nationally. And I think that's some of what you're seeing these people respond to is they're looking at Ron DeSantis and saying, does that person, does he have appeal on core issues that would drive a general election appeal? Because remember, this is a candidate whose argument against Donald Trump is mostly going to be electability driven, that you can get Donald Trump's policy, but I can win. If you have a six week abortion ban hanging over you and in a general election, those donors are looking around and saying, is that proposition still true? Are you still molding yourself as the type of person who can win a general election? Because that distinction has kind of fallen away for him as he has tried to really appeal more to the Trump side, the primary side of the equation. A lot of people, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the, you're the D.C. reporter, <laughs> knows all things. But I think many people have thought that Biden would have announced officially yeah. already. Yeah. And now there's been reporting that it will get pushed off even further. Do you think any of this goes into his calculation? He said he intends to run, but, you know, with a lot of these GOP, um, you know, potentials dro dropping out or not running a DeSantis-Trump matchup, would any of it change Biden's calculation? We're really hearing that be true. When you talk oh. to folks around the White House, there there's a real sense uh, of not only is Biden working on his own timeline and he feels good about that timeline, yeah. but there's also a sense that the, they think that the White House is helped by well, the chaos happening on the okay. Republican side. And so there's a real sense of comfort that this will be a Biden campaign where he's used to running against. He's already proven himself as someone who can defeat a MAGA wing. And so, you know, one of the things we did in our podcast, the run-up was go to Philadelphia yeah. for the DNC. And part of what we were hearing from uh, Democrats there was that their confidence in Biden was partially because of his own accomplishments, but was really because they were sure Republicans uh, uh, were, frankly, a worse option. We likened it to black. Jack, saying they think they have a good <laughs> hand, but they're really sure that the dealer on the other side is going to bust. And the house is going to bust. That's what they think is going to happen. And, you know, that's the, that's the bet the Democrats are making. Because of that, they're all in on Joe. Mm. Mm. You got nothing. I got No, I, I was finally, we have a little bit of time interested about Governor Kemp yeah. and his stance over the weekend. We can play a clip and get your thoughts. Mm -hmm. 
And I was just laying out the blueprint print for I think any candidate to be able to win is to talk about what we're for, focus on the future, not look in the rearview mirror. Stop being distracted from Trump yeah. investigations was his message. In 2020. 100%. And you see Kemp as really the foremost figure who's been able to make this argument. And you see this argument really true for Republican governors. Uh, when you talk to uh, folks close to Kemp or, or Mike DeWine or, or folks who are Republicans who won statewide, they'll try to say you need to look forward. And if the Republicans can do that, they can change the page and win in the general election. The problem for Kemp is that there was a poll coming out of the University of Georgia last week that showed Donald Trump up 20 percent in uh, in the Republican primary against someone like Ron DeSantis. So while Kemp, that argument yeah. worked for him well, and his, he had a real base of support there, his, which I think should not go undercounted. It's not an argument that's necessarily translating to the other people trying to beat Donald Trump, at least at this moment. interesting that his race was different, a huge race in terms of the money pouring in uh, and a challenging race for right. him. Is it, is it when you look at that, that uh, Pompeo, I'm not exactly sure why Pompeo says not going to run in their scene quick, but um, is Donald Trump not only sucks all the oxygen out of the room, but is he also sucking all the money out of the room as well? It's particularly on the small donor side. When that small donor money after the indictment is flowing to Donald Trump, it makes it more difficult for people to really gain money and gain energy in those early stages. That means they're more reliant on those big donors, which causes their kind of early stages of the yeah. race to be a little more complicated. Mark Connish called it Bernie's. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, sometimes I say out loud the voices in my head. <laughs> I was like, like quick, quick, quick. quick. Like, quick. They're the voices in the control room. Thank you very much. Thank you. Michelle. I appreciate yes, it. I got to go to commercial. Thank you, Estelle. Good to see you. We do have to go to commercial. We do. Now don't and worry. then, the Republican-led House Judiciary <laughs> Committee holding a field hearing here in New York City, taking a swipe at Manhattan's District Attorney Alvin Bragg. And guess what? Our colleague and friend Laura Coates just spoke to him on her radio show. We'll tell you what he said ahead. Uh So minutes from now, the House Judiciary Committee, chaired by Trump congressional ally Jim Jordan, will be holding a field hearing here in New York City targeting District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Now, according to the committee, today's hearing will zero in on how Bragg's, quote, pro-crime anti-victim policies have led to an increase in violent crime and a dangerous community for New York City residents. Congressman Jim Jordan spoke to our very own Laura Coates for her serious XM show just moments ago. Here's what he had to say about the hearings. Okay, so we have a technical issue with uh, the sound, but the question that Laura asked was, is it about the crime uh, or is this about Alvin Bragg? And then he responded, let's see um, what he said. Is it about Alvin Bragg? Okay, so listen, I just want to tell you, though, that the hearing comes um, just over two weeks after the former president was indicted uh, in connection to Bragg's investigation into Trump's alleged role in hush money payment scheme involving adult film star Stormy Daniels. Now, Jordan was asked why he is issuing subpoenas on this issue, even while he himself refused to comply with a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Let's listen to this one. I never once said I wouldn't testify. I was I was corresponding back and forth with the committee. That's a little different, the January 6th committee, which was completely partisan. In spite of all that, I still didn't tell the committee that I wouldn't uh, testify when they asked me. We had re- sent letters to them, and they just they just jumped right to the, the subpoena, jumped right to the, the whole thing. Uh, so I think that is a completely different uh, different situation. So Laura also asked the congressman about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his undisclosed financial ties to a Republican mega donor. Here's that. 
As part of the Judiciary Committee, are you intending to investigate Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas? Um, uh, we, we are not. Uh, we are. We are not. Uh, I, I know the left has been out to get Justice Thomas for a long time. Uh, they had hearings on this uh, in the last Congress uh, under then Chairman Nader when Democrats were in control, and they've been uh, out to get President, uh, or excuse me, uh, Justice Thomas for uh, for a long, long time. Let's bring in our CNN political correspondent, Sarah Murray, and CNN congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox. Uh, guys, this is really interesting. Of course, Laura did a brilliant interview uh, that everyone can listen to a little bit later if they can weren't listening the to her quote radio since, show. Yeah, yes, it's, and then you can ask the question. The one that, that we had a technical issue with, uh, and then Poppy can get our question in. Laura said, is this about brag or is this about crime? And Jordan said, a huge percentage of New Yorker, percentage of New Yorkers want to lead because of this crime factor. And when you have left-leaning DAs more focused on politics and crime, turns out when you don't put bad guys in jail, there's more crime. Imagine that. Yeah. Uh, Point of fact, crime, violent crime, murder, rape, robbery, all down um, this year in 2023. Well, there was a spike prior. That is also a fact last year. Sarah, talk to us about what's going to happen, because this committee is going to have people that they label, quote, victims of Alvin Bragg's policies speaking today, right? After Mayor Adams was just in there talking. That's right. I mean, Republicans are going to try to to focus on Bragg's record, try to focus on crime here. You know, they're going to have this bodega clerk that was, you know, sort of a mark on Bragg's record. He brought second degree murder charges against him and later dropped the charges amid this sort of public outcry from people who believe that this bodega clerk was just defending himself when he was attacked. That's what Republicans want to talk about. But also, this is about providing cover for Donald Trump. You know, we know after the indictment, Trump was trying to shore up his support with GOP lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Republicans on this committee have already said, you know, they're investigating Alvin Bragg and his investigation into Donald Trump here. And so Democrats are going to try to bring this back. And this is what we heard from Jerry Nadler, from Mayor Adams this morning, saying essentially if Republicans really cared about crime, they would, one, be focused on gun violence and, two, be focused on other cities beyond New York. And beyond that, they're going to bring this back to, you know, this is Republicans acting as essentially defense attorneys for Donald Trump. That's what we heard from Jerry Nadler this morning. Lauren, what are Democrats saying this morning? Yeah, I mean, just to add to some of that reporting from Sarah, one of the things that we are hearing from Jerry Nadler this morning is that there is a belief that this is really a sideshow, that this is nothing more than an effort to protect former President Donald Trump. Nadler saying, quote, Jim Jordan engages in a lot of political theater in Washington, but he should know better than to take his tired act to Broadway, kind of a classic uh, New Yorker versus New Yorker quote there. But one thing that you are also going to hear from Democrats today is that they believe that this was politically motivated. And the evidence that they have for that is that there was a request for information before an indictment was even announced. Interesting when you, I mean, what else would it be? Why would they come to New York and, and do this if it wasn't in some way for as cover for the former president? Um, I, I want to ask you, um, Sarah, the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is going to be delivering remarks uh, at the New York Stock Exchange today. Do you have any details about, uh, Lauren, sorry, uh, do you have any details about, about that? 
Yeah, I mean, this is all part of an effort this week to intensify pressure on the White House to come to the negotiating table on the debt ceiling. House Republicans had a call yesterday where Kevin McCarthy walked them through the details of that plan. They are hoping to put it on the floor in the next several weeks. They're hoping potentially to even have legislative text for their own debt ceiling increase coming in the upcoming days. One thing to keep an eye out for is this plan intends to include major spending cuts as part of a one-year increase for the debt ceiling, expect that Kevin McCarthy is really going to make that the centerpiece of why he is talking to the New York Stock Exchange. This is all about a public relations campaign to try to ramp up pressure to get Joe Biden to the negotiating table. Hmm. Thank you both very much. Are there protesters behind Sarah? Sarah, are there protesters out there? Um, we, you know, there's a couple people here and there. It's not, not a, like a big crowd. There was a much bigger crowd earlier just waiting no. to get in line to the federal building for other business. Got it. Got it. Got it. We'll be watching. Thank you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate it. Countdown is on. Soon the Starship rocket is expected <laughs> to lift off from a SpaceX launch pad in southern Texas. The company says this is a test launch for a ship that could eventually bring people to Earth's orbit the moon, and someday to Mars. The company is targeting 9 a.m. Eastern for liftoff, but they say the rocket has the ability to take off anytime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Eastern time ahead of this launch. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk said there's a good chance it gets postponed. This is SpaceX's first attempt to launch a fully assembled Starship vehicle after a years-long testing campaign. Can't wait to see that. Can't wait to see it. Something I don't watch, but apparently a ton of people do. <laughs> love is blind. You cannot hurry love. We all know this. And you can't hurry the show either, apparently. Netflix is now apologizing after the much-anticipated live reunion episode was delayed. Harry Enten has more on the number this morning. You can rush. Hurry. Harry. <laughs> Harry. Oh, my gosh. You have no room. We actually have no idea what's going to go down at this reunion. You know why? Because we're doing it live. Okay, well, they did it live, kind of. Love is patient, shocked, disappointed. Fans of Netflix reality dating show Love is Blind still waiting this morning for the highly anticipated reunion episode that was set to air live last night. But a more than hour-long platform crash forced Netflix to switch gears and tape the episode for release later today. Netflix apologized to eager fans in a tweet saying, quote, to everyone who stayed up late, woke up early, gave up their Sunday afternoon. We are incredibly sorry that the Love is Blind live reunion did not turn out as we planned. So our senior data reporter, Mr. Harry Enton, is here. And I guess Love is Blind has something to do with this morning's number. Uh, It it does. And I'll just say, love will keep us together, as my uncle once said. Love. Love will keep us together. There you go. This morning's number is 90, 90 minutes, because last night's Love is Blind delay was 90 minutes before being taped, and then hopefully will air later today. So 90 minutes was the morning's number. Here's why people are so upset. Look at Netflix shows by hours viewed in the last week. Look at this. Love is Blind is number two. The Night Agent was number one. Love is Blind just ahead of beef. If you're I like just me- started watching beef last night. I, it's good. Is it good? It's good. The, 
That might yeah, be. I don't even know what any of these shows. Are. <laughs> Neither do I. We're what is wrong with me? We're a step by step in all of this, right? I, I, I actually have heard of the blacklist, although that's number five on this list. But you get an idea here, right? That Love Is Blind is really quite the popular program. Yeah. Now, I want to point out that this sort of problem that Netflix has had with Love Is Blind comes on top of uh, problems that they've had growing their subscriber base, right? So we do see that in 2022, their subscriber base did grow by four percent, but Look at this. What we essentially see is the growth is decelerating, right? Back in 2020, it was 22%, 9% in 2021, just 4% this year. So I think there's some question, right? Will this type of event make people less likely to want to watch Netflix? And here's the other thing I'll note. You know, regularly live streaming, right? Amazon has NFL games. Apple has MLB games. Netflix, this is really only the second major event that they live stream, right? The other one was the Chris Rock stand-up special, which I think a lot of people enjoyed. So I think there's this real question over whether Netflix is actually in the game to actually be able to do live stream and do it successfully. It's interesting because, uh, you know, everything is supposedly streaming now. But when you do these live things, it's, just, it's the same as people linear. excited. It's the same it's as like linear TV. television. It's like, oh, TV Regular TV all over again. Yeah, yeah, and it really is just regular TV all over again. I will point out that we have had disasters before in sort of broadcast television, right? Love is Blind isn't Heidi. This was a big one. A 1968 AFL Jets Raiders broadcast was cut off by NBC in the East, so Heidi could start at 7 p.m. Fans missed an epic Raiders comeback. So the fact is, we've always had problems in terms of live streaming or live putting on of events. This is not the first time, and it won't be the last time. I went to that game. I was in high school. Did you really? No, 1968. No, you won. I'm just kidding. No, I'm joking. Did not go. <laughs> By the way, beef starts with uh, Ali Wong, What's it the about? comedian, and it starts with a road rage incident. It's fun. You should watch it. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Harry. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. <laughs> Love will keep us together, guys. Right now, it's a really big day in Boston. Obviously, a significant year, marking 10 years yeah. since the horrible bombings at the Boston Marathon. Uh, Polo Sandoval joins us here. Good morning, Polo. Hey, guys. Good morning. That's right. Some of Boston's finest behind me, putting the finishing touches as they get ready to close off the course as nearly 30,000 runners getting ready to start pounding that pavement for the marathon. It is certainly a celebratory day, but also a very solemn one. We're going to break it all down for you coming up watching CNN this morning. Well, this morning, runners are getting ready to take their marks in the Boston Marathon. But today also marks 10 years since the bombing that left three people dead and injured nearly 300 at the marathon. We all remember him, right? We'll never forget that face. That is eight-year-old Martin Richard. He was killed that day. And today, his father, his brother, and three of his former third-grade classmates will reportedly run the marathon together. Our Polo Sandoval joins us live in Boston. Good morning, Polo. Some of those great stories, Poppy, that we expect to see firsthand later today. In fact, that first wave of runners going to be getting started in a little bit over half an hour. Some of Boston's finest already roping off the course. Where this particular part here, uh, Poppy, those runners, some 30,000 of them uh, are going to turn the corner. By the time they get to this point, they will have about four miles left before they reach that iconic finish line on Boylston Street. Like we mentioned, about 30,000 runners from 121 countries, uh, and among them will be the family and friends of little Martin Richard, just eight years old. His family, uh, particularly his sister, now 17, her name is Jane, 
telling the Boston Globe about what the last 10 years have been like for her, uh, even tattooing the word peace in her little brother's hand, on, uh, uh, on her wrists, in her little, little brother's handwriting. Uh, it really does speak to just the lasting memory that so many of the people that were affected by that day 10 years ago, they still cling on to those memories, but also something that was really uh, poignant and powerful coming from Jane in her conversation with the Boston Globe, uh, as, as she told the reporters that that loss, it will always be a part of her. She will never stop grieving, but she is ready to start her own story. So those are just the remarkable stories of those people who are left behind, many of them still struggling with their wounds. Over 200 people uh, injured that day. Today, it is a mix of both, though, Poppy. You certainly have uh, that solemn mood, especially after this weekend, when with a series of events commemorating the victims, those who were lost that day. But there's also a sense of celebration here. A lot of people excited about what today will bring. Poppy. Yeah. Holo, thank you. We're very, very glad thank you. that yeah. you're there. Yeah. Wish everyone a very safe and successful race there. Our thanks to Polo. We thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. CNN News Central starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.